Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Offenbaugh as he gives an encouraging word titled, Delightful Decisions. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with you today. I love each one of you. God bless you in Jesus' name. Let's say a prayer together. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit will speak to us and then help us apply uh, your word to our lives on a daily basis. I know that would bring glory to you, much help to other people, and delight to our own lives. And we ask for that by your great grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. The message this month is called Delightful Decisions. Now, if you're like me, you've probably been hoping that somebody would make some good decisions in America. And uh, maybe you've been real disappointed, as I have, as you've watched others make what you might consider wrong, stupid, or even evil decisions. I thought the Democratic Party decided to stuff the ballot box in five swing states. I didn't like that decision, and I didn't like it when the state, federal, and Supreme Court all decided not to hear any of the massive evidence. When the Republican state legislatures, congressmen, senators, and governors couldn't unify and fight for their own party, I, and uh, for uh, basically for America, I didn't like that. And I didn't like it when President Trump decided to have a mass, massive rally at the Capitol on January 6th to protest that uh, election fraud and then uh, really didn't make the case for the crowd to be real, real controlled and sweet. But... Uh, they got completely out of control, and someone will say, well, that wasn't his fault. No, but it certainly did backfire when uh, many in the crowd broke into the Capitol building and five people died. Well, he's being blamed for that, <clears throat> as, uh, being blamed as uh, inciting a riot or insurrection or whatever. Uh, he did decide to call his own loyal vice president a coward, which probably wasn't a good idea. And so now uh, Democrats, many of them socialists, are in control of the executive branch, the Senate, and the Congress. Uh, President-elect Biden is promising to flood the nation with illegal em immigrants and promote transgender movement, raise taxes, promote the Green New Deal, shutter all the charter schools— and it looks like he'll be making a slew of what I would consider really bad decisions. So, you know, watching the news and hoping someone would make good decisions has just kept me on edge for uh, quite a while. But after January 6th, I resolved to get back to what really counts, which is my own decisions. And we could worry and fret about how the bad decisions of others will affect us in the future. <clears throat> but really, the only thing that could ruin our lives would be our own hard hearts and our own lack of good decisions. So it's time for us to focus on making our own very best decisions that will bring delight into our lives. Now, uh, an example in the Bible, my first point is a bad decision of one person can be overcome by the good decision of another. In the book of Esther is the story of the king of Persia, who was persuaded by an evil man named Haman to issue a degree, a decree for the annihilation of all the Jews. And uh, on a certain day, the news went out over the Persian Empire that people could kill Jews and seize their property. And uh, once a law was in, made by the Persian king, their tradition and their law said that it could never be changed once it was put into writing. And so, 
you know, it was a mess. It was a terrible, terrible decision. When the king realized it was a bad decision, because it would involve killing his own queen, uh, he gave Mordecai, the queen's uh, uncle, his signet ring and told Mordecai to write a new decree that would override his own bad decision. And so Mordecai wrote that the king was also on that special day giving the Jews permission to gather together, defend themselves, and kill their enemies and seize their property. Well, the Jews did kill their enemies, but they didn't seize any of their property. But the tables were turned. The Jews were all delivered because one decision uh, countermanded uh, the really bad decision. Now, it's possible for you to make decisions that will overcome the bad decisions of others. And I want to give you some Bible examples. My second point is about Caleb and Joshua and their own good decisions. When Moses sent uh, 12 spies into the land of Canaan, 80% of them chose to disbelieve the promises of God. They chose to magnify the problems, the giants, the walled cities, the land occupied by seven nations greater than Israel, and they chose to lead the congregation into rebellion against God and uh, announced that they wanted to appoint a different leader than Moses and return to slavery in Egypt. Well, that was a really bad decision. Now, Caleb and Joshua decided to believe the promise of God and follow God wholeheartedly. The decisions of those unbelieving leaders, because all 10 of those uh, bad spies were leaders of tribes, and uh, so they were very influential people, and they caused their own destruction, and then because the congregation picked up and uh, on their unbelief and fear and rebellion, Uh, God just decided to let all the people over 20 years of age uh, die in the wilderness the next 40 years. And God took care of them, but he supernaturally preserved the lives of Caleb and Joshua, keeping them supernaturally young, and then took them into the promised land, and they were able to lead the younger generation in to possess, uh, you know, the inheritance that God had promised Now, the point was the decisions of others caused Caleb and Joshua some trouble, right? Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. But God was with them, kept them supernaturally young. And their decisions then to be men of faith, to really believe God, to follow him wholeheartedly, was a bigger influence in their life than than the bad decisions of those around them. God had spoken about Caleb and said, he has a different spirit. He follows me wholeheartedly at Numbers 14, 24. Now, remember, there were 600,000 plus men over the age of 20 in that congregation, and God just found two men who were making the right decision. So I don't know about you, but you might look around and you think, you know, I think everybody's going nuts. I think this nation is stupid. I see people all around me making dumb decisions. Well, it wouldn't be the the first time that only a few people were making good decisions. But you don't need to despair. What you need to concentrate on is you be that person that makes right decisions. You see, Caleb could have said, my life is over. My hope for happiness is shot. All the people around me are goofy. They're nuts. I've suffered because of them. I'm suffering. I'm going to suffer. If they'd ever make right decisions, I could be safe. I could be secure. I could be blessed. I could be happy. But no, they plunge us into ruin and destruction. Well, He would have been wrong to say that. Now, the wrong decisions of others did cause him some trouble, 
but his right decisions helped him overcome all of that and inherit the promise. My third uh, point is that Paul made a good decision after others made terrible decisions. Now, the Apostle Paul at this time was a prisoner on a ship, chained, bound for Rome, where he had appealed to Caesar. And they got to one harbor, and uh, it wasn't a good place to winter, so they either had to go back or go forward. And Paul told them, if you sail forward, you're going to run into a terrible storm. I perceive in the spirit that it's going to be great loss to the ship and the cargo and probably our lives. But the three leaders, the owner of the ship, the captain of the ship, and the Roman officer in charge, because there were soldiers as well as sailors on board, they all decided that they had to go forward to a better port for the winter, and so they set sail. And that was a nice day, gentle breeze, didn't look like a terrible storm, but Paul knew that their decision was going to really mess things up, and he was right. Now, he could have said, oh, bummer, I'm doomed. This ship is going down. I'm chained. The Romans never unchain their prisoners in a shipwreck. They let them drown. It's hopeless, and I, I could have been happy if those dummies would have had any common sense. But, of course, that's not what Paul thought or said. What he did decide to do himself, his own decision— was to hold firm in faith to God's promise spoken to him by a visitation of Jesus when he was arrested in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, you must testify for me in Rome. And so Paul decided to fervently pray for God to make a way where there seemed to be no way. And the 13th night of that terrible storm, an angel appeared and told Paul that only the ship would be destroyed, that they'd run the ship aground on an island, and that God had graciously given him the lives of everybody sailing with him, and God promised none of them would die. Well, the ship did run aground, and it was destroyed. The cargo was lost, but all the people were saved. And then God gave Paul a whole series of miracles. Not only did they survive the shipwreck, even those who could not swim got to shore safely on planks or pieces of the ship. And when Paul helped to build a fire, a deadly snake came out of the brush and bit him. He shook it off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. And so then he got famous on the island. He prayed for uh, the father of the chief who was very sick with a high fever and dysentery, and the old man was healed. And then they brought all the sick on the whole island of Malta to Paul, and God healed them all. And so Christianity swept the island, and I believe he led many of the soldiers and sailors to Christ. Uh, Now, you see, it was a bad decision on the part of the captain and the owner of the ship and the Roman officer, but Paul's decision to believe God and to seek God and, and, uh, and hold on to the word of God <clears throat> was greater than those bad decisions, and God mixed grace into the situation for him. Now, my fourth point is that Paul's story lays out a great principle for miracles. Over the years, I've preached in all 50 states, and in most places, I have preached that God makes miracles out of two things, out of problems and grace, because it's true. You know, there'll never be a miracle unless there's a problem first, And so God, you know, a problem will be there, and then God will mix grace with it and turn it into a miracle. So if I said, how many of you love miracles, you'd raise your hand, you'd smile. If I said, how many of you love problems, it wouldn't be such a response. But uh, you see, to love miracles, you uh, you have to have a great attitude towards problems and believe that they're raw material, whatever they, whatever they are, all right, and no matter how bad they are. 
Now, God can release problems to a nation with his left hand and give problems to the righteous and the wicked. But in his right hand, he holds grace for the righteous. The Bible says he holds victory in store for the upright. And so when God releases grace with, or, uh, problems with one hand, then it's just problems for most people. But when he mixes grace with it, with his right hand, for the righteous, then it turns into miracles for them. All right, and we see that in the example there of the Apostle Paul. Now, in all my prayers for the 2020 election, I prayed one thing over and over, that God would be glorified. And, you know, I had my own way of imagining how God would be glorified. Uh, I couldn't imagine that allowing fraud and no court to hear the case and President Trump, who supported Israel so strongly, would be defeated. And, you know, that just didn't make any sense to me. But uh, if it doesn't have to make any sense if I hold on to one thing. Lord, what really counts is that somehow your name will be glorified. Now, right before the cross, Jesus said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Well, that's what counts. And God uh, allowed Jesus to be crucified, but he raised him from the dead. So he had his own way of bringing glory to the name of Jesus. God allowed Jesus to suffer the greatest injustice in the history of the world, but God raised him from the dead. Now, he didn't give Jesus or his followers wonderful political leaders. Herod was still king, and Pontius Pilate was still a wicked governor, and Rome still ruled. But instead of giving great political leaders, God poured out his Holy Spirit and gave the believers spiritual power to heal, to cast out demons, to lead hundreds of thousands of people to Christ. And of course, that was more important than just a comfort zone. Now, I'll continue to pray that God will raise up judges who fear the Lord, and the same with mayors and governors and attorneys general and district attorneys. We need to pray for justice. We need to pray that God raises up people that are godly, that fear the Lord. But I keep remembering that God didn't force King Herod to do his will, and God gives people free will and then either rewards them or punishes them according to their decisions. I think the early church was probably praying that God would help King Herod make the right decision concerning Peter because he had imprisoned him and was planning to execute him. Uh, but God actually let Herod make his own bad decision. What God did do was send an angel and miraculously help Peter escape execution. The guards, the four guards that he was chained to, uh, uh, they all ended up getting executed in Herod's anger. And God ultimately judged Herod, and uh, he was died suddenly and was eaten by worms, the Bible says, when an angel struck him. And so we see now that many people in the United States want to impose socialism on us, and God could deliver us from that, or he could glorify his name by mixing grace into the problems and using those problems to bring many to a realization of their spiritual needs. I don't know which way he's going to do it, but I've been praying for a national revival. 
Now, that might come in a different way than we think. See, I thought a second presidential term for Donald Trump would be a vehicle for revival. Uh, But God could bring it about another way. It might be that the church would remain in general lukewarm if they feel politically secure. They might really press into God if they feel real threatened. So... My fifth point is that God plays checkers with the devil. Now, in a checker game, the master checker player controls the game by the checker or checkers he allows to be jumped and removed from the board. Uh, He'll move a checker into harm's way, which the opponent then is forced to jump it, and that little checker is removed. But in doing that, the board can be positioned so that the master checker player can double jump the opponent and open up the king row and then another checker is made king. Well, that helps the master checker player win the game. Now, we have to pray with our very best understanding that we have, and we have to ask God to intervene in our situations. But if he doesn't answer our prayers in the way we expect, it's because he wants to do something bigger and better, and he never fails, but he does fail to do what we expect sometimes. Now, example is Jacob sent his young son Joseph out to check on the older brothers. And I believe when he sent him out, he prayed, God, bring my boy home safe tonight. Except he didn't come home. Uh, They brought home his robe of many colors, all torn and dipped in goat blood to fool their father because those jealous brothers had sold him as a slave and he was taken to Egypt. And so for the next 22 years, Jacob felt like God had failed him and hadn't answered his prayer. It was only, uh, you know, 13 years in Egypt, then, then Joseph was put in charge, and seven years of collecting food, and then two years into the famine, his brothers came down. And so it was uh, uh, 22 years total until they brought the carts back loaded with food and provision and fancy horses and harnesses. And they said, uh, Joseph is alive. He's Lord of Egypt. And the Bible says Jacob was stunned. Then the heart of their father, Jacob, revived. Then Israel spoke. Israel was his special man of God name that God gave him when he wrestled with the angel all night and uh, prevailed. It was kind of like a superman name. Well, he hadn't been a man of faith for about 22 years because he thought God had failed, you see. But God didn't fail. God just was had a bigger plan. He wanted to uh, take Joseph down to Egypt. He wanted to change the hearts of all the brothers. He wanted to make him into a great nation and Joseph to save them from starvation and bring the nation out through Moses later and be a witness to the whole world and eventually bring Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, through that nation. Another question, why did God ever let King Ahab and his evil witch of a wife named Jezebel, why did he ever let them reign over Israel? I mean, he could have just zapped them. Now, you might say, well, well, I don't know, and I don't know either. But I do know that during their evil reign, which God allowed, that's when he anointed Elijah to bring the nation back to God. Now, Jezebel promoted idol worship and had hundreds of prophets of Baal, persecuted the prophets, killed as many as she could of the real prophets. Uh, But, you know, the spirit of Elijah was so powerful that he called fire down from heaven and consumed a sacrifice and even the altar stones 
And the people fell on their face and said, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. So have you ever sang the song in church, these are the days of Elijah? See, now we like the idea of God's power anointing us like the prophet Elijah. What we don't like is the idea of a wicked Ahab type of a man, a wicked Jezebel type of a woman ruling over our nation. Well, we just can't control everything, but we should decide to draw near to God like Elijah and to speak uh, like Elijah whenever we hear from God and then like Elijah to do works of faith by the power of the Spirit. Now, my sixth point, I want to give you two other good uh, decisions that overcame the bad decisions of others. Let's talk about Noah. Noah walked with God, and his entire generation, or the entire world of that time, walked in rebellion against God. They lived in violence towards one another. And the Bible says their hearts only thought of evil all the time. And how could, uh, how could Noah possibly be happy and secure when all the people around him walked in deception and sin? Well, Noah made a good decision himself. He decided to seek God earnestly, to know God, to please God, and to walk with God. And so when God decided to destroy the world with a flood and he released that flood, he released in his other hand grace to Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And of course, that turns problems into miracles. And so the whole flood that destroyed the world was a miracle for, for Noah. And uh, he was able to save his family. And uh, then they basically inherited the, the new world that was created. Another example is Daniel. Now, the Bible says that Daniel would pray three times a day and thank God in his prayer times. And he lived and worked in total integrity and diligence, and so he was very trustworthy and faithful. And because of his excellent spirit and his abilities, the king of Persia was going to promote him as the top administrator over the entire empire. Well, these other uh, 120 top leaders, they were very jealous of him, and they wanted to destroy him. So they knew they'd never find any criminality, so they flattered the king, and they said, please make a law that no one should pray to any other god other than you, O king, for 30 days. And, you know, that was like, wow, we're really putting honor on you. We're going to, you know, treat you like you're god. And the king went along with that, and uh, so then once that law was signed, uh, Persian tradition and, and law was it couldn't be changed. Then they come right back, catch Daniel praying, because he, he decided he'd just keep doing what worked for him. He knew that seeking God and being thankful to God above all else, uh, and uh, he didn't try to change his habits at all. So they caught him in prayer, had him thrown into the lion's den. Now, Daniel, when he heard that law had been made, he could have said, well, now I'm really messed up. Boy, I'm sad. I'm defeated. If I don't pray, I won't have any blessing from God. If I do pray, I'm going to get eaten by lions. These people have made really bad decisions. They've ruined my life. Now, of course, Daniel didn't think that or say that. He simply decided to keep doing what had always worked for him, and that was seeking God three times a day and being very thankful in prayer. He'd open his windows towards the east, back towards Jerusalem, and pray for a miracle of restoration for that tiny remnant that was left of Israel. So 
The king reluctantly had Daniel cast into the lions, but God mixed grace into the situation. An angel came, shut the mouths of the lions, and after spending a night of discomfort in the smelly and scary and creepy lion's den, Daniel was lifted out, and uh, he got to see an angel in the process and had a miracle, and all the people who accused him were thrown into the lion's den with their families. That was a sad ending. Uh, but their evil decisions led to their own ruin. So my seventh point now is that it's time to focus on your own good decisions. And I want to, you know, I'm writing a new book, uh, and it's called uh, Living uh, Delightful Living, or Living in Delight, rather. And it's 21 Decisions and Disciplines That Would Fill Your Life with Delight. And I talk in there about the, the proverb, he who plants a fig tree will eat its fruit. Now, um, a, a major decision is like planting a tree. And if you've ever bought a tree at a nursery, it has a big old root package on it. Even a young tree that's five or six feet tall will have this big bunch of dirt that weighs about 100 pounds around the roots. And you have to dig a great big hole when you plant a tree. So it's a very intentional thing. And so when the Bible says, he who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, what you first have to do is plant the fig tree, then you tend the fig tree, you water it, you fertilize it, you prune it, you might have to spray it, but then it'll bear fruit, and then you eat the fruit and live in delight. All right, so these type of decisions are what I call, you know, the fruit tree or fig tree decisions. And the first one is have you decided to seek God a lot? Now, our country is uh, going pretty crazy, and we don't know how persecuted we might be, but one of the best decisions you could ever make would be to really increase your time seeking God in his word, in prayer, in worship with other believers, talking to God throughout the day, always practicing his presence. You see, Noah walked with God. And Daniel prayed three times a day and gave thanks. So for a couple of years, I don't know the exact amount of time, but I firmly decided that I was going to start spending, you know, three hours a day in devotions. And uh, the key to that is to decide to go to bed early. And so between eight and nine, I try to go to bed and then I automatically wake up after eight hours of sleep between four and five. And then I get up, and from 5 or so till uh, 8, I can read the Bible for an hour and a half. I can pray for an hour and a half. And, of course, uh, my when I first wake up, I get some coffee on, and I put on a very comfortable sweatshirt and sweatpants, which I refer to as my priestly garment. You know, the Old Testament priests wore ephods. Those were linen garments. Mine is just a more uh, cotton, uh, comfortable, cozy, but at any rate— Say I plan, and I am devoted to it. So it's like I planted the decision, and then I got to keep it alive, like you'd have to water a tree. I have to keep living that out. But then that time with God bears fruit, and, I, and then I eat the fruit of that fellowship with God, and I live in delight. And uh, so I'm living in delightful uh, fellowship with God in spite of the fact that many in our nation are making really bad uh, decisions. Now, and excuse me for saying this, but I think most Christians have not made this decision. They don't spend much time with God. And so then they're troubled uh, more than they need to be by the decisions of others and get into fretfulness and 
worry about things they can't control when the best thing you could do would be to decide to, you know, not waste your late evening hours. Just go to bed so you can get up early in the quiet and really have some tremendous times with God. All right? And he who tends a fig tree will eat its fruits. You've got to plant the fig tree decision. You keep it alive with daily discipline, and then you eat the fruit and live in delight. And so if you make a bunch of really good decisions like that, you can have an orchard of fruit tree decisions, and your life can be filled with delight in spite of the bad decisions of others. Now, the second uh, big uh, fruit tree decision I'd like to recommend was have you decided to abide in God's word? When I was a boy, I lived on a ranch. My sisters were eight and ten years older. They moved into Rapid City to be closer to school and uh, had room and board at a house. I didn't have anyone to play with. My nearest neighbor was five years older and lived five miles away, so I had to make up imaginary games. Now, the Presbyterian Church had given me a little New Testament in a box when I was sprinkled in infant baptism. And uh, on top of the little Bible was a letter from the pastor. So I would get out the letter and read it and pretend I was getting a letter from Roy Rogers or the Lone Ranger, some uh, you know famous cowboy back in the you know 1950s, early 1960s. And uh, one day I was bored. I was 12 years old. I started to do that stupid game again. And as I took out that letter, this strong thought came to me. You've read the letter a hundred times, but you've never read the book. You're a big boy now. It's time to read the book. And I didn't realize that was God speaking to me. I just agreed with the thought. And uh, so I took the Bible to school with me. And I began to read the scriptures about Jesus. And I urge every one of you, please read the story of Jesus for yourself. I liked what Jesus said. I liked what Jesus did. How can you help but like Jesus when you read about him? But then when I came to the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then I came to John's gospel, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of the spirit, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. And I'd been reading what Jesus said about hell, how there's not a single drop of water, not a single time out, people in agony in the flames, um, their worms never die, the fire's never quenched. And I thought, well, if I'm not, if, if I was born again, I'd know it. But I don't know it, so I must not be born again. That means if I die, I'd go to hell. Now, I was 12, and I wasn't a very bad sinner at that time. But you see, I was still a sinner. And I always tell people somebody will be the nicest person that ever goes to hell. They'll just have sinned enough to be a sinner. They'll miss heaven. And so I hope you'd all get concerned about your soul. Now, the Bible got me concerned about my soul, and it keeps me uh, making my spiritual security number one in my life. Boy, I want to fear God, obey God, please God, know God, and uh, be conformed into the image of Jesus. Well, I began to pray every day that I could be born again, but I didn't know how to receive. And so a year later, at a rancher's camp meeting, a preacher 
gave a public invitation to receive Christ. And when I prayed the prayer and stood to my feet to show that I was receiving Jesus, the Holy Spirit flooded into me. I was born again and probably baptized in the Spirit simultaneously because I wanted to just erupt in what felt like laughter. The joy was explosive. But being raised Presbyterian, we only made noise uh, in church when the bulletin told us what noise to make and when to make the noise. So I just about bit a hole in my lip and I didn't let it come out. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I went forward then, as the pastor said, those who have received Christ come forward after your, your relatives or friends will wait for you. I want to talk to you. So at the end of the service, I went forward and he told us, you know, a few little things of follow-up. One of the things he said was, read at least a chapter of the Bible today, a day. And I vowed at that point that I would read a chapter of the Bible a day. Now, some days over the years, I've been so tired, I'd reci- I'd recite a common psalm like Psalms 1 or Psalms 23. But I've kept my vow, and uh, I've, I've had a tremendous life of loving the Word of God, loving the Bible. And so when I planted that fig tree decision that I would spend time in the Bible every day, then, you know, I was when I was pastoring, I decided that I'd get through the Bible four times a year by listening to it when I drove my car. And so I got the Bible on audio CD, and I'd, I'd listen entirely through the Bible in three months and start over again. And I did that for years. Now the main way I in the, the Bible is, is I uh, get up in the morning, get my coffee on, put on my spiritual garment, so to speak, and uh, sit down and I read the Bible and underline things and just soak it in for about an hour and a half a day. And then I pray. And uh, so Jesus said, if you remain in me or abide in me and my words remain or abide in you ask whatever you wish and it'll be given to you this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples so much fruit comes out of a great life in the word of god and then that leads to delight so plant the fig tree tend the fig tree, eat the fruit, live in delight. And I want to suggest that you decide that you're going to saturate your life with God's Word. See, uh, now listen, I'm saying this kindly, but I believe that most Christians have not planted this tree. And so then, what's growing in your garden? (laughs) Well, this would be a great tree to have in your garden, I tell you what. Uh, Now, you can also download the app on your smartphone. Uh, I use the one called YouVersion, and it has several different translations. The ESV has a really nice speaker with a beautiful voice, and I like to play that particular one. And so I can play it through my car, and I don't have to have audio CDs that get scratched up. I just use that Bible app, and I have a good Bible concordance on my computer, and I have... you know, like three or four Bibles with me when I read in the morning. So if I have a question, I can look up and see what it says in other translations. And I would get a Bible that you can mark in because it all, all it counts to honor the Bible is to get it in your heart. So please uh, put underline things and I put arrows in there and I write little things in there so that I can go back and remember them and find them because... All, all it's going to count is how much the Bible you get inside of you, not how 
pristine your Bible looks after years with no marks and no wear and tear. Now, my third uh, fig tree decision I want to suggest is, have you decided to share your faith? So I got saved when I was 13, but I didn't tell anybody about it. I remember being in a class in the Presbyterian church, and there was kind of a, a Sunday school teacher that we all thought was a little bit odd, and she was trying to tell us that we could be born again, but she wasn't very good at speaking, and and I could have spoke up and said, I know what you're talking about. I've been born again, but but I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't say a word, and... So I was that way for five years, from 13 to 18. And finally, in my senior year, these two Christian girls found out that I was a born-again Christian, and they invited me to come to their house for a prayer meeting for our school on Saturday. And I did that. And when I drove in to their driveway, they ran out to meet me. Their tears were streaming down their cheeks, and they told me that our six A-Squad cheerleaders had died that morning in a fiery plane crash at the Rapid City, South Dakota airport. They were coming back from a basketball a tournament in the eastern part of the state in a private plane, and they landed in a crosswind, and the gust of wind tipped the wings, uh, it, and the plane cartwheeled and exploded, and they were swept out into eternity. Now, we had never witnessed or shared our faith with them, and so we did not know if they went to heaven or if they might have been lost. We just had no idea, but what we knew is that we had been negligent to say the least, irresponsible, we had never shared our faith. And we repented and we cried and I vowed that I would share my faith. I promised God I would. And so I I went to a Southern Baptist pastor and he helped me make a scripture chain of about 12 verses and I underlined them in red ink. I started with John 3, chapter 3, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3 through 5 where you must be born again. That's the one that got my attention, and I'd start with that. And then I'd take them through the Romans road, you know, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life, and then I'd end with Revelations 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Well, that was March 17th, 1968, and if you wanted to Google that, March 17th, 1968, uh, the six cheerleaders that were killed. It'll bring up an article. You can see the pictures of them and read about them. But from March 17th to the end of the school year wasn't very long, and I led 12 students to Christ in that short time, see? So I planted a decision. Now, in those days, I had a lot of problems. I was oppressed a lot of the time. But you don't have to be perfect to share your faith. You can be pretty messed up yourself and say, look, I know Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my answer. I get comfort from him. Come with me. Now, everything we know about God is like a box of thread. But, you know, a box of thread, you have to have a needle or you can't get the thread into the cloth. And similarly, we need methods, which are like our needles, to get our message into people. So you see, I had a little single needle there. I had a little marked up New Testament and I used that effectively to get what I knew about God into people for their blessing and salvation. And so then I've uh, used the method of bus ministry very effectively, 1000s that way, uh, literature evangelism, speaking you know, in public services. 
But the last few years, I've been concerned that I wasn't winning very many people to Christ. And I started saying, God, I want new methods. And, uh, I, I, and then I said, I don't just want a needle. I, I want a sewing machine, you know, that can really go fast, get the much uh, thread into the cloth. And then I said, I don't want just one sewing machine, Lord. I, I want several sewing machines. And so, so far, God has opened up uh, helping me get these uh, forgiveness books into prisons which is a marvelous spiritual sewing machine. It's a method. And uh, by the way, that book, 21 Ways to Forgive, is now the translation is completed into Spanish, and it's also completed into Telugu for southern India. Of course, we need funds to print them. Uh, and then the Lord put it on my heart to start a tract ministry. So right now I have two tracts that are uh, Best News Ever and The True Story of the Rescued Rat. And I just have to go to Office Depot and run off, you know, 100 or 200 at a time and sell them at cost for about 25 cents a piece. Uh, if I get $1,000 more, uh, I'll have enough money to print 15,000 copies of that first track, Best News Ever. Then I can sell them for nine, well, they'd be nine cents a piece plus the shipping. Just I'll just sell them for 10 cents a piece. You no, know, it's not a moneymaker, but it's a sewing machine. And then I, I envision uh, talking to pastors and selling them, you know, 500, 1,000 at a time, challenging them, get your people committed to uh, passing out the word of God. Let's win some souls. I think that's one of the most important things we need to do in our country because stop and think, why does God leave us here on earth? There's only one reason, and that is to win souls. Everything is better in heaven. You say, Really? Well, yeah, even the coffee is going to be better in heaven, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so no matter what you think down here, it's going to be better in heaven. Why does God not just take us all to heaven? Well, because there's no lost people in heaven. And down here is our big chance to bring others to Christ, our big opportunity. I have another track called The True Story of the Rescued Rat, and uh, I want to uh, uh, print that in full color. And then the famous track, uh, we have 250,000 of those in print called You'd Make a Marvelous Christian, but the drawings are all black and white, and, and so the people look like they're all white people, which doesn't work in our culture anymore. And uh, so I've had the artwork put into full color, and we've given people skin tones from, from kind of dark to medium to maybe one white. And uh, that this track ministry you see is is going to be every tract is going to be like a sewing machine and i can't hardly wait to put these salvation tracks in those boxes of forgiveness books that we send to prisons so i'm looking for investors I, to me it seems like a really important thing and i believe that god is using me to make some of the most important and easily readable attractive tracks anywhere in the world now uh Justice gives a nation stability, but injustice produces instability. And friends, socialism has never worked anywhere. It has always produced poverty and oppression and ends up getting a whole lot of people killed. And so the bad decisions of others are going to result in many people wanting to find hope and comfort in God. And the same thing with the coronavirus. It's made many people realize their mortality. And God blesses soul winning. Now, the church in general, 
you know, we Christians individually have been silent believers like I was the first five years. Most Christians, most churches are basically minding their own business, silent believers, born again, but not telling anybody. And we need to repent of that and realize we're left here on earth to win souls. Well, see, we won't win any. We won't find a method. We won't pray for a spiritual sewing machine if we don't plant a decision like a tree and say, by God's grace, I'm going to share my faith. Now, he who tends a fig tree eats its fruit. So plant the fig tree, tend the fig tree with daily discipline. You know, you got to keep doing it. You got to keep passing out those tracks or whatever your method is. And then you're going to have the fruit of winning people to Jesus, which is the most satisfying thing in all the world. And that's going to fill your life with delight. Even if you were arrested and you were in a prison, if you could lead somebody to Jesus, it would be delightful. You see, your decisions are what ultimately fill your life with delight or not. Now, the fourth, have you decided to train a spiritual leader or be trained yourself? Paul wrote to Timothy, and these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. That's spiritual leadership training. And if you could think, what's the greatest need in all the world? Would it be the vaccine for the virus? Would it be food for starving people? Well, those needs are very important, but I don't think any need is as great as training spiritual leaders who follow the Holy Spirit because they tend to solve every other problem. They don't just have to be preachers or pastors to be a spiritual leader. You could be a judge. We need spiritual judges, spiritual governors, spiritual mayors, spiritual business people. So training spiritual leaders is tremendously important. And then how about you? Start with yourself. I would. I wrote the book then. It took two years for me to write this book called The uh, Good and Faithful Servant, A Trumpet Call to Return to Spiritual Leadership. It took a lifetime to learn the stuff that's in the book, and it's all wonderfully true. It's, it won't go out of style. And uh, I would love to have each of you get one and then go after training somebody. You could even just give the book to some zealous young person that wants to do something for God. I got a letter from a prisoner that says that when I get out, I, I want to be a minister. Can you send me something that'll help me become a minister? Well, I've got to get on that letter and try to get this book sent to that uh, man through a chaplain. But what I'm saying is most Christians have never decided to be trained to be a spiritual leader, nor have they decided to train others. But why not? If it's the most important decision in all the world, and I've made it easy for you, see, you could download the uh, 270 minutes of me teaching through that book for $50. Then just have people over to your house and play, play a little bit of me teaching it. Have them buy their own book. Their workbook is an e-book they get from our website for $2.00. And then all you got to do is lead discussion from all the questions and material we'll give you in a free teacher's guide. You don't have to lecture, be a great talker. You got to be pretty good. You got to learn how to ask questions and get people to give you feedback. But you could have a class. You could train leaders. Now, we desperately, let's see, uh, two big things I'm impressed with. The, the, 
the church needs to get back to maybe more than two, but we desperately need to get back to witnessing. The Holy Spirit was given to give us power to witness and the importance of passing our faith on to others, training them to be truly spiritual. Most leadership training, see, when you go find a leadership book, there's nothing about the Holy Spirit. And then when our pastors and young people are trained in leadership, but it's just all secularized, it actually harms the church. We must have spiritual leadership training. Well, that's a great decision. Now you need to make that firmly and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to get that book. I'm going to get trained myself, and then I'm going to do what I can to train others. See, for years I prayed, Lord, use me to bring you glory. Then after 20-some years, use me to bring you massive glory. 20-some more years, and now my prayer is, Lord, use me to help others bring you massive glory. <laughs> That's what this is all about. I want to help you bring God massive glory. All right, I'm near the end of my sermon. This... Uh, I'm on the seventh point, but on a fifth sub-point, and my fifth sub-point is this. Have you decided to love your enemies? Now, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, Matthew 5, 44. And so I've been uh, noticing that, you know, my own heart was getting disgusted with people who were just mouthing off and so arrogant and saying such hateful things. And, uh, and I just about ready to nominate a whole bunch of them f for God on, on a hit list. Say, God, no, here's some names. Why don't you just go take these people out? And, uh, you know, it would even seem logical. Uh, you know, the early Christians could have, could have prayed that God would wipe out King Herod. God didn't need to be ask that. He eventually did that on his own. And, uh, you know, one time I said, God, you're not going to let those people get away with that, are you? And, and God said, you don't need to remind me of that. The devil's already reminded me of that. You see, even if people are voting for communism and the devil is motivating them, he'll turn right around and accuse them before God He'll tell them you need to be pro-abortion and then he'll turn right around and accuse them to God and ask God permission to bring judgment on them. Now, if we let our hearts get hard and angry at people who persecute us or who call us names, you know, a lot of people will just say to somebody, oh, go to hell. But you don't want to go to hell with them. And Jesus said, if you say stuff like that, you are in danger of hellfire. He said that in Matthew 5, if you call people, you fool. He said, you're in danger of the fire of hell. You know, so I've, I've thought about this. The, the British and the United States worked so hard to defeat the Nazis. But if our soldiers died and were never born again, then they went to hell with the people they defeated. They defeated the Japanese. But if, if the Union defeated the Confederates, but many of them are in hell together... You want to go to hell with your political opponent? Well, you probably will if you let your life get filled with hatred. And so, you know, I, I think our national events are, are leading to, out, to more strife, to outlandish speech. They could lead to more bloodshed, God forbid. But we could get swept up in that. 
And so I've, I started realizing my own need to really feel love for people that I find utterly repulsive. Now, you know, there's an old saying, hate the sin and love the sinner, but we'll say, oh yeah, that's right. I hate the sin, but I love the sinners. Most of the time, we don't really love the sinners. We hate the sin, and our hatred for sin bleeds over onto the sinner, and we hate them both. We hate their sin, and we hate them. And then we're not really spiritual. We're not really sons of your Father in heaven, like Jesus said. We got to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us that we may be sons of our Father in heaven. Well, then I just started noticing, you know, my own need and uh, the, the decision to really love our enemies is, is one that we need to firmly plant in our souls and then keep it alive every day with some kind of discipline and actions. And in other words, you could pray uh, for somebody. The minute you see how nutty they are or how mean they are, then you could think, oh, there's another person that'll end up burning in hell forever. I don't want that to happen to them. Oh, God, they've been blinded and deceived by the devil. Uh, please somehow take the blinders off their eyes and somehow bring an, uh, somebody to them that really knows you and represents you properly and help them. You know, now, how many think that'd be a good idea to just immediately? You see somebody that is your enemy, the way they're speaking, the way they're acting, what they're going for, wouldn't you agree that we, that the church and you and I need to plant this tree, you see, because we say, yeah, I know that's in the Bible, but we don't love our enemies very good. I'm, I figure that if I haven't done a very good job of it, probably you haven't either. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. But anyway, I'm, I'm really repenting on this. I'm saying, Lord, my heart was starting to get hard, and I don't want anything to do with hatred and strife and division. Now, one time I was going through a slander attack, and I found a verse in the Bible, Psalms 31.20, that says, you keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. And I grabbed that verse. I said, dear God, that's what I need. I need to be hidden away secretly in your special shelter from the strife of tongues. And God spoke to me and said, I will if you'll stay out of it. <laughs> and that meant I could be sheltered from it if I didn't participate in it. Now, I've prayed a lot for President Trump and appreciated his agenda and uh, have overlooked uh, many of the things, you know, that we could find fault with. But one of the things I was always concerned with is that he, he was never very sheltered from the strife of tongues, to put it mildly, because he kept participating in it. Well, we need to apply this to ourselves. Feelings are running high. Anger is simmering. The union basically is broken now because some states were allowed to not follow the Constitution, which is the basis of our union. So we all need to really be guarding our hearts from hatred. And people we think are completely nuts can change. Now, the mayor of Portland named Ted Wheeler has been famous all over America for allowing nightly riots for over a year in Portland, Oregon. But uh, recently, January 2nd, there's an article in the New York Post 
quoting him, and this is his quote. He says, my good faith efforts at de-escalization have been met with ongoing violence and even scorn from radical Antifa and anarchists. In response, it will be necessary to use additional tools and to push the limits of our tools we already have to bring the criminal destruction and violence to an end. It's time to push back harder against those who are set on destroying our community and to take more risks in fighting lawlessness. Well, that's right on. But see, I wasn't praying for him. When he let all that stuff go on, I didn't realize that he was trying to de-escalate it in good faith. I just thought he was a nut. And so we're often not anywhere near as spiritual as we might imagine ourselves, <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, so now, see, he's somebody that I see, well, there's a little common sense there. God might be giving him something. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start praying for him. And uh, I don't know if you've heard AOC, the very outspoken young congresswoman from New York, I believe that she wants justice. And I think a lot of the socialists, like Stacey Abrams in Georgia, I think they really want justice. It's just they're kind of confused as to how to get it. You know, you can see injustice in capitalism. You can see injustice, but then you, you, then the devil would like to deceive you in, in how, to, uh, how to bring about justice so that you never really get there. You just have another form of injustice. That's why we need to pray for these people. We, people can change. And if Ted Wheeler, after a year of letting Antifa just uh, bully their way around Portland, now he's got the right idea. You know, even the Apostle Paul that so viciously persecuted the church was changed and became the great Apostle Paul. So Paul wrote, I urge first of all then that request, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, the devil's going to tell us, uh, well, it don't do any good to pray for that idiot. Uh, but I would urge you, you'd really never know who can change. You really never know. God can give somebody a near-death experience and show them they're about ready to go to hell, and then they'll change wonderfully. So, have we decided to love our enemies, to pray for those that persecute us, to plant that like a tree and then keep that tree alive, don't let it grow, uh, don't let it die. In other words, you water it with the Word of God. You water that decision in times of prayer. And, and then it's going to produce fruit where instead of being filled with hatred, you're filled with love. And you become a true child of God uh, because, you know, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. He loves God so loved the world. They certainly weren't all perfect. That he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, recently my wife was praying and the Lord, she said the Lord boomed a scripture in her. When, when the Lord really impresses something, it can just jar from the inside. And uh, the, the scripture God boomed inside of her heart was, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Now in closing, you remember the story in the Bible. David had fathered a ch child with Bathsheba and uh, 
you know, they committed adultery. There was a baby conceived. David had the husband put up in the front lines, and he was killed. And David took Bathsheba to be his wife, and the Lord didn't like it, so he struck the child. And David was praying that child would live, and he fasted many days. But God didn't hear that prayer, and he let that child die. And when the child died, David ended his fast. He got up and washed, changed his clothes, and had a meal and he moved on. And so, you know, I had a moment like that. I think it was probably January 7th. The, the votes had come in. The Congress read the votes on January 6th to accept Joe Biden to, as the president. Um, January 7th was, was the day after the big riot then at the Capitol. And I had just prayed with all of my heart God would save the presidency of Donald Trump. I had prayed that the socialist candidates in Georgia would not win the election, but they did win. I was just spending a lot of time praying that other people would make good decisions that would benefit my life and your life. But many, many wrong decisions were made by others, and I believe President Trump made a wrong decision to call Mike Pence a coward and, you know, come off in such a way that people felt emboldened. We can't blame him, but on the other hand, you know, he probably made a mistake there somewhere. And so we could just worry and worry and fret and, uh, and say, boy, the whole, everybody around me is crazy. I'm living with crazy people. The world's crazy. But you're not going to get any joy out of that kind of living. You have to plant your orchard that you're, that's going to fill your life with delight, and that's your own decisions. So have you decided real firmly, plant it like a tree, to spend a lot of time with God? Noah walked with God. Everybody around him was crazy. Huh? Right? God destroyed the whole world. They were all filled with violence, thought about evil all the time. But Noah walked with God and found favor and grace and was blessed. Well, you can go over this. I hope you'll decide to abide in the Word of God, spend a lot of time in God's Word. I hope you'll decide to share your faith. See, get some spiritual sewing machines going. I, I hope you'll decide to train a, be trained as a spiritual leader and train others, the, probably the greatest need in all the world. And then I hope you'll decide that you're going to Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, what's going to happen if you decide that firmly and with the help of the Lord keep those tree decisions alive? They're going to bear fruit and they're going to fill your life with delight. Now let's pray. Father, we pray you'll help us make the decisions that are wise, that are loving, that would please your heart. Decisions that will not only benefit our lives, but the lives of multitudes of other people. As we help us to plant them really firmly. And help us to water them with daily discipline so that we apply your word daily on a daily basis. And, and we live out these decisions until they become ha habitual and then turn into beautiful fruit trees. We'll eat the fruit. We'll export the fruit. We'll give the fruit away. And uh, we'll live in delight. If you can help Daniel and Noah and Paul and the other examples, Caleb and Joshua, 
even when others were making such bad decisions, you can help us. Help us make fruit tree decisions. Now let's say his name together. In Jesus' name. I love you. God bless you. If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com or you can write P.O. Box 485, Cresswell, Oregon, 97426.